0: Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Well, as a number of you know, Advent is the season when we look forward once again to the coming of Jesus at his birth. It's a, a wonderful and dramatic story of hope, and it's one that we rehearse and relive over and over, year after year. An Advent is also a season in which we practice waiting. We join in with the faithful people, people of Israel who looked forward to Israel's vindication, to the coming of an anointed one of God, the Messiah, to be at the forefront of their rescue from exile and oppression. Now, of course, for us, We know that Jesus has already been born, but we still seek to engage deeply with the story that captures our sense of waiting right along with those of ancient times. As I've mentioned before, I uh, very often, if not always, preach the scripture texts that are found in, in what we call the Revised Common Lectionary. It's a lectionary that we use. And a lectionary is just a listing of recommended scripture texts for each Sunday of the year. And I like to use the lectionary readings because they draw me into texts of scripture that I've not chosen for myself or or ones that I just find easy to talk about. In fact, they often require me to face texts that I find difficult. And today's gospel reading is an example for me of that kind of difficulty. And the difficulty for me is that our text this morning from the Gospel of Mark, like a number of recommended Advent readings, sounds like it's more about the end of the world than it does about the coming birth of Jesus. Nevertheless, there, there it is. So we should take a look at it. Now, for a very long time, people have interpreted this text as Jesus' explanation of his return, of his second coming. And, and we do believe that Jesus will return in the fulfillment of, of God's kingdom at some point in the future. But a number of scholars are looking at this particular text in Mark 13, have taken a fresh look at it, and have offered some some new viewpoints, which I think might be helpful to us. Jesus' words in this reading are are filled with, with imagery that's borrowed from the Old Testament texts, like Isaiah 34 and Daniel 7 and Zechariah 14. And he speaks of a difficult time ahead, a time of suffering, when there's going to be massive upheaval. He uses very strong Old Testament language about a disruption in the sun and the moon and the stars, which in the pagan world were often seen as things that were alive, they were animate. Uh, And they were indicators of all kinds of, of pagan deities up in the heavens. But Jesus says that these powers would collapse, they would fall. And with it, he offers dramatic imagery, symbolizing not only the powerlessness of false gods, but also the destruction of everything around the people, the the destabilizing of all that had seemed relatively stable. And that impending doom that Jesus is talking about, according to scholars, is the actual historic sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. This happened around 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus. But the power of the true God, made known in Jesus, the Son of Man, would prevail. Characterized as one coming in the clouds, his power and glory in stark contrast to the failure of the idols of the world. But how and why then did Jesus see this coming? Well, he's Jesus, of course. But he also saw the signs of Israel's corruption and and could see as the prophets before him had seen that disaster was indeed on the horizon. Whenever the people of Israel strayed from their calling as the people of God, pain and suffering would come, usually in the form of some kind of foreign invasion, a military attack. And Jesus saw in his day, the Jewish leaders playing political games with the Romans, while putting heavy yokes of religious legalism on the necks of the people. He knew of the local terrorists, the zealots, who sought to cut as many Roman throats as possible in order to hasten the day of the Lord. Jesus saw all of this. Uh, In another gospel, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, he, he castigates the religious leaders for their corruption and then offers this very heartbreaking lament over Jerusalem when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Jesus saw it all coming. In fact, just a few years later, the Roman emperor Gaius Caligula, a rather nasty character, Upon learning that the Jewish people didn't worship him as a god and that they would not tolerate idols or images made to represent any form of divine beings, he decided it would be a swell idea to build a huge statue of himself and have it installed within the temple walls in Jerusalem. Well, that went as you might have expected. And it was actually the Jewish peasants who took to the streets, staging massive protests that caused the more moderate local Roman governors to hesitate, hold back in the installation of the statue, even risking the rage of the emperor. But fortunately, Caligula had the good sense to just up and die, and the crisis was averted. But anger against Roman rule continued until war broke out between the Jewish nation and Rome. And Rome won, predictably. And Jerusalem was wiped out 40 years after Jesus predicted the disaster. And so Jesus tells his followers to be prepared. He assures them that they will be gathered up and saved if they see what's coming and and get out of town in time, which he does tell them earlier in Mark chapter 13. And how are they to recognize the signs of disaster? Well, Jesus says it's, it's like watching the seasonal cycle of a fig tree. You know that when certain things happen, a new season is coming. So watch what's going on and then be prepared. It's understandable, I think, that Jesus' disciples would ask when all of this would happen. Every time Jesus talked about things like this. But he doesn't ever give them what they asked for. Instead, he just keeps telling them to stay awake, to be prepared. Some years ago, I I went to see a doctor because I I thought I might have a bronchial infection, which it turns out I did. And this doctor was new to me, and so we really weren't acquainted. But if the wall decorations with scripture verses were any indication, then I, I figured he was a Christian. Well, I went into the room and I sat dutifully on the examination table while he reviewed my file. And I was employed at Fuller Seminary at the time, and when he saw that noted in my medical history document, he closed my file, he looked at me, folded his arms, and he said, Fuller Seminary, eh? Now, his tone suggested to me that he was not asking this out of mere curiosity. So I said, yes so he said when is jesus returning and he didn't say it in a way that suggested he didn't already know what answer he wanted if you know what i mean so in an attempt to to thwart him with my amazing knowledge of the bible i said only the father knows and i figured that would close it off but no but there are signs he responded i said People throughout the ages have thought there were signs. I was hoping to chop him off at the knees with a little bit of church history. But then he went off on a political rant that then became a lecture. Now, you have to understand that I was in a very vulnerable situation. I I felt lousy, and I needed him to figure out what was wrong with me and give me some medicine. What I didn't need was to get on the wrong theological side of him and have him send me home to die. So when he took a breath, I said, so what's wrong with me? And I hoped he would know I was talking about my health and not my mental or theological state. And he suddenly remembered that he was a doctor and he diagnosed my ailment, sent me off with a prescription. And and to his credit, I did recover, but I never went back. People of faith have always longed for certainties about the intentions of God. It seems that While we indeed can have confidence in the God who has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus, the certainties remain the property of God himself. If we owned the certainties, there would be little need for faith and our waiting would be more like waiting for our favorite TV show to start rather than waiting for a bridegroom or a master who shows up when he darn well pleases. You know, it strikes me as important that that Jesus' words might be pointing something in real time rather than to something in the far off distant future. If, If Jesus was talking about the end of all things, then his words would have little meaning to people over the centuries. It would only be the folks who are around when the end actually comes who would benefit from what Jesus was saying. The prior generations, would just have to scratch their heads and wonder. But if Jesus was really talking about a disaster that was right on the historical real-time horizon, then he was speaking right into the troubled, dangerous world in which he was a part. And because he was speaking about something real and contemporary, he speaks to every generation. Human societies have always been crafted by power. Sometimes that power is, is benevolent, other times it's tyrannical. Regardless, the people of those societies have their thinking formed by that power and very often see the workings of their nations as the ultimate reality, or a reality that may be marked by prosperity and peace or by desperation and violence. And I'm hearing in Jesus' words today, a call to be watchful regardless of those realities. And I'm not talking about being watchful about bizarre conspiracy theories or assumptions about the dark intentions of political leaders or the mind-numbing dangers of rock and roll or whatever new thing captures our imaginations. I'm talking about being watchful about the way that we as followers of Jesus are being formed and shaped by the dramas and narratives of our cultures rather than being formed and shaped by the work of God's spirit. You see, I believe that our watchfulness comes by looking at life through the lens of God's kingdom, of God's presence, his work, all of which is made visible in the person of Jesus, living and active in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. It's not that we can't assess and critique what's going on in the world around us. It's it's that our understanding cannot be limited to the perspectives granted to us by the cultural dramas of the day. St. Paul had to address this kind of thing in his first letter to the Corinthians. He addressed a whole laundry list of things that while were maybe considered commonplace and even acceptable in the pagan world, had no place in the life of the church. He identified divisive behavior, sexual impropriety, lawsuits, even even treating the work of God's Spirit, spiritual gifts, in ways that mirrored the practices of their pagan neighbors rather than the way that we are responsive to God. The people were using the wrong lens when they looked at what was taking place all around them. But even though the Christians in Corinth appear to have been a bit of a mess, Paul reminds them of God's grace and God's generosity in pouring out his gifts to them. He says that God will continue to strengthen them as they wait for what God has in mind for the end. The important thing to them is not when the end will come, but rather what God has granted to them in the waiting. You know, I've been thinking about what it might have been like if if prior to this dread year of 2020, Jesus would have dropped by and said, look, you all need to pay attention to what's going on in the world. There's a pandemic on the horizon, and you should be prepared. It's going to feel like the sun and the moon and the stars have switched off and fallen from the sky, so you better get ready. Now, if that were to have happened, I wonder how people would have responded. I suspect that that Jesus would mean something more than stockpiling toilet paper and hand sanitizer or staging protests because we don't like our pandemic-related restrictions. I think that our preparation, like that of the earliest Christians, would be to pay close attention to what's going on and to respond as the church, as the people of God, as the recipients of God's generous gifts and grace. Paul says that in the waiting for whatever end is coming, that God's gifts are not lacking. And I think this means something important to us as we read alongside our Corinthian ancestors. I think it means that for us, preparation looks like engaging with those gifts in our time of waiting, as in all times. It's just that in a time of crisis, those gifts become more and more desired and valued than they might be at times of relative ease, just as the power and glory of God would be desired and valued in a fresh way when a national disaster has occurred. We, along with all the regular people of the world, don't usually have access to information that points to a possible impending disaster, whether it's a a pandemic, a terrorist attack, or an act of war. There are people who do that, whose job it is to watch for those kinds of things, And, and sometimes they predict well, sometimes poorly, and sometimes not at all. Regardless, we're not usually in the decision room when those things are discussed. Nevertheless, in all circumstances, God has granted us his gifts of grace. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul is getting down to brass tacks about the spiritual things that we call gifts, he claims that they are granted by God for the common good. Now in the context, he's probably talking about the church, but giving God's heart for the world, I, I think it's not a stretch to understand the gifts and graces that God has given to us to be for the sake of others in general, both inside and outside the body of believers. In a time like this, I think it's very important. When we feel like the sun and the moon have gone dark and the stars are fallen from the sky, we remember that Jesus has already come to us in his glory. And power, that God has already granted to us His gifts of grace. So, yes, we should be cautious and careful, especially during a pandemic, but we need not collapse into fear. We should be attentive to the moods and actions of our nation, but we dare not replace the power and glory of God with political claims and demands. You know, we started out today reflecting on the theme of hope on this first Sunday of Advent. When the city of Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, followers of Jesus turned to their hope in God's care, even when things around them looked dark. And even for us today, with over a million deaths worldwide, more than a quarter million deaths right here in the United States, and all of the resulting economic and social problems due to COVID-19. Things can seem quite dark, but hope in God persists, doesn't it? As the writer of the letter to the Hebrews reminds us, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, there's a lot we can see, mostly in the form of news stories and and people everywhere wearing masks. We see that. But what we don't see forms the ground of our conviction. If we saw and knew exactly what God was doing and when he was going to do it, hope would be unnecessary for us. See, we stop hoping when we think we've grasped the thing that we long for. And our faith is not focused on an empty hope, but on a hope that comes with assurance. Assurance that God is present by his spirit that has been poured out to us. That in Jesus, God's kingdom has broken into our world in real time. That one day, God will bring his kingdom to fulfillment when Jesus returns and God will make all things right on that day. And we have faith that even in dark times, God is with us, that his gifts are granted, that he is faithful. And as St. Paul tells his friends in Corinth, so does he speak to us today. God will strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him, you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You know, even in our desire to be faithful to God and and faithful to the gifts that he's given to us, we pause for a moment now. And we pause to recognize and confess our failure to always be that kind of people, even to be a people of hope. And so we now come to the God who knows us, the one for whom we wait with anticipation and hope. And we tell the truth about ourselves, trusting in his loving grace, in his forgiveness, seeking to be reflect, uh, refreshed and renewed by his spirit and looking ahead with confidence to that time that is yet to come when we are invited into the fullness of God's kingdom. And so now we pray together. Lord God, you have so- shown us such love and stretched out your arms to draw us into your embrace. Yet we so often fail to show that love within our lives or recognize its source. Forgive our short-sightedness for the times we fail to see your love in the generosity of friend or stranger, the shoulder to cry on, willing ear to listen, a word of encouragement, holding our hand that extra mile. Forgive us for failing to notice how much you care for us. Amen. And now, may the Lord enrich us with his grace and nourish us with his blessing. The Lord defend us from trouble and keep us from all evil. The Lord receives our prayers and absolves us from our offenses. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.